Testing one, two. Testing one, two. Sounds okay to me. Are you talking about right here or just southern Texas? Southern Texas. Well, hello. Here are your intrepid travelers once again, the RV navigators, talking to you this time from southern Texas near Corpus Christi. I'm Ken. And I'm Martha, the co-pilot. And we have been um, traveling uh, for about two months on our adventure and spending the summers and spending the winters in the Southland so that we don't have to endure the cold weather in the north. Uh, we're basically Midwesterners uh, that have headed south for the winter. And one issue always is um, the weather. When we are at home, we have been spending the Christmas holidays at home, and we take off in January for warmer climates, and timing is always a bit tricky. We learned last year that it's very important to pay close attention to the weather forecasts because there's nothing more exciting and dangerous than driving through ice storms. And we were very fortunate this year that the weather was just cloudy and cool, but uh, it's smart not to have too much of a tight schedule because you have to allow for some flexibility for the weather. Last year uh, we drove through freezing rain and our hatches froze shut and Ken had a hard time getting them open so we could plug in once we finally slid into a campground and uh, we learned a lot from that first trip south so we have learned to be more flexible as we head toward warmer climates in the winter. And it still takes us about uh, three or four days to make it south uh, and uh, that can lead to some interesting driving, um, and especially as we are in the further north. But last year we found that the south was actually quite uh, quite cold, um, but this year the weather has been much more pleasant for us. From our uh, research thus far, it seems like the only places that are reliably warm in January in the United States are uh, Florida, south of Orlando, uh, Texas in the Rio Grande Valley, and the Yuma area of Arizona. Last winter, we spent some time in San Diego in February, which I have always thought had the ideal climate year-round, and we found it quite cool and foggy on the coast. So uh, we have learned that at least in January, if we want to be warm, we really have three choices, or four if you consider going on to Mexico. And uh, that's something we did do last year. Uh, the we were, we're looking to be kind of semi-full-timers and certainly enjoy the warm weather, but uh, it's no fun to sit in, in your trailer when the weather is bad, so it's uh, worth it to head far as, as far south as you possibly can go. And uh, we're learning along with you, and we want to share our experiences so that you will not have to uh, experience some of the problems that we've encountered. And likewise, we hope that you will do the same, and you can send us email at navigator at rvnavigator.com take a look at our website for for links that we might mention today and we will uh, take you on our adventures and last year we did the adventure to Mexico and that was quite uh, quite illustrative and that was quite illustrative also because uh, we had snow six inches of snow uh, 200 miles south of the border 200 miles south of El Paso
One thing is, as Midwesterners, we have to learn to pay more attention to is elevation issues. Um, in my mind, as soon as I head south of where I live, it should get warmer, and that ain't necessarily so. Um, as you travel around the country, you realize that you lose your sense of the weather. Uh, when I'm at home, uh, I can have a pretty good feeling of how how cold it's going to get in the evening or whether rain is coming or not because I've lived there for most of my life. But, for example, here in Texas, uh, we have found that the weather can be quite volatile in the winter and certainly an issue that is of primary importance around here is the wind. Uh, we're from the Windy City area, but it doesn't hold a candle to the wind issues down here in southern Texas. So they not only get weather from the West Coast as we do, they get weather from the South and from Mexico and they have Pacific Ocean issues and um, Gulf of Mexico issues, and it can be quite complicated down here. And we've had weather as warm as 85, 95 degrees, and as cold as um, just about freezing in in the month that we've been here. So uh, you really have to pay attention and have an RV that will keep you comfortable in all kinds of weather conditions. We always think of a lot of snowbirders as going to Arizona in the in the winter, but uh, from our experience last year, we found that Arizona was uh, fairly cool uh, unless you went really far south in Arizona down to Yuma and then you run into the problem of nothing to do uh, one of the, the things that we found is is that uh, there's a big difference between your background if you've been uh, from an urban environment or from a rural environment and the places that you enjoy going to and, and what you enjoy doing but we'll maybe save that for another one of our, fa- our podcasts uh, a little bit later on but today uh, we are camped and we are boondocking and we assume that most of you know the term boondocking. Boondocking is when you are self-contained and not uh, relying on any outside sources for your for your energy and uh, for your water and things. You bring it all with you and we are camped on a beautiful location here near Corpus Christi in uh, Port Aransas, Texas and we have been um, boondocking here for three days and we are literally um, 100 feet from the ocean's edge coat uh, camped uh, on the sandy beach and this is one of the few beaches where you can actually just drive onto the beach and we've been quite surprised at this area because this is a kind of an idyllic sort of situation let's be more specific we're not just talking about the beach right here in port aransas um, it appears that you can drive uh, from this area north and south all the way onto padre island uh, to the national seashore pretty much on the coast every so often it's interrupted by a jetty that sticks out in the water and you can't Uh, drive over that on the sand, but when there is um, beach sand, it's hard packed, it's fine, and uh, they even grade it in many places, and there are traffic signs on the beach so that you know the speed limit, and it certainly makes beach combing a little challenging because you can't just mosey around and wander because you have to keep your ears open because there might be a big truck barreling down the beach right behind you. Or an RV, more likely. Uh, We are camped here, and I can see probably 15 other people who are RVs that are camped here. Last night we had a, a tenter camped uh, next to us, and uh, it just seems to be a place where people gather. And, of course, <laughs> being so nice and close to the water, uh, you'll hear the waves in the background for, and maybe just a, a little bit of wind noise as we sit out here and enjoy the fine 80-degree weather on, uh, in mid-February.
Uh, speaking of boondocking, I would say that it's a concept that's rather romantic, and um, I know I frustrate my husband because I am often not enthusiastic about doing it, uh, not because I am not willing to live without utilities, since our RV is fairly well equipped to go for at least three days uh, in uh, with a comfortable lifestyle. But um, often boondocking places are places that are off of pavement and in the woods or on the edge of a cliff or in this case on the sand and um, we have a 32 foot fifth wheel and I am always a little bit nervous about getting somewhere that we can't get out of but in this particular location we have uh, toured this area a bit just with our chalk truck and uh, saw that many RVs were parked here on the sand and seemed to be getting in and out without difficulty so I, I put my faith in um, what I've been seeing with my own eyes and we came here and have really enjoyed this spot and I will enjoy it even more retrospectively once we are back on the pavement and I know that everything went okay. And uh, we are fifth wheelers, as we've mentioned before, and we have a four-wheel drive pickup so that uh, pulling it across the sand here should be no, has been no problem and should be no problem as we get ready to leave uh, tomorrow. But boondocking does uh, present its own set of problems. Uh, we're not exactly looking for the camping experience per se. We're looking to kind of maintain our, our lifestyle while we are boondocking. And our lifestyle, as you will find, is quite high-tech. Uh, we have three or four computers in our RV and um, a large TV and a TiVo. And, and I like to cook with my microwave and dry my hair with my hair dryer. And we're, we're by no means um, Spartan, rustic, pilgrim-type people. Uh, last winter, we spent a few days in qu- the Quartzsite area, and people there who boondock seem to take, take great pride in spending a month out in the desert without coming in for any sort of utility replenishment whatsoever. And there were long conversations about saving your dishwasher, dishwater and washing your hair in it or vice versa, whatever. Uh, those kinds of issues don't appeal to me. I mean, I would do it if I have to do it, but I don't have to do it, so I don't want to. Uh, so we're not Spartan boondockers by any means. And uh, we have got ourselves set up, so our life is pretty comfortable, and uh, we don't have to be particularly thrifty. Well, we do uh, we do enjoy the the nice spectacular location here, and to enjoy this, we have to at a, at a reasonable cost. I think of what a hotel room would cost if you were 100 feet from the water. It would cost hundreds of dollars a night, I would suspect, in most places. But here, we're camping basically free, and it's because we can boondock, and we have taken some effort to make sure that we can boondock. And I think that's the topic which uh, many. RV, uh, RVers are interested in and uh, winter Texans also the other thing I really like about boondocking is often when you are in commercial campgrounds, understandably the owners of the campground are out to make a buck and they kind of pack you in like sardines and you have to watch out that when you put your slide outs out, they're not sliding into somebody else's slide outs and, and you're kind of living in close quarters and we have a nice picture window in the back of our rig and I look out of it and I see a dumpster or somebody else's picture window. Uh, after a while it gets kind of tiresome. So when you're boondocking, you're out in nature and you get beautiful views and can be by yourself, and that certainly is appealing.
We'd like to say that we've been watching the sunrise uh, in our back window this past couple of days, but unfortunately we don't get up that early, so we do get the nice morning sun in the back, and we get to watch the, the sunset over the land side of the beach. And the moon rise. Ah, uh, but we do get to watch the moon rise, because we are up for that at 6 p.m. <laughs> So, on to boondocking. Um, boondocking has many uh, aspects to it, and we'd love to share some of our experiences with you, and, and hopefully you'll listen to this podcast, and it will jog your memory, too, and you'll send us an email, or maybe we could even talk on the phone. And we can put you on the podcast with us. But anyway, um, the technical issue is that uh, we carry about 60 gallons worth of water. And uh, as most people, we have a, well, we actually have two gray tanks and uh, an equal amount of uh, capacity for the gray water and black water. And of course, how do you conserve water? And what do you do? I try to plan ahead. Um, I put the faucet on low whenever I'm washing anything. Um, when I shower, I turn it off and turn it on. Whereas at home, I just let it run. That's really about it. And that's nice. And that's what happens when you have 60 gallons of water. We find this lasts us uh, three days without much problem, four days if we work at it, and, and five days if we really want to conserve. And, of course, the other issue is if you eat out a lot, then you don't have to wash dishes, and that saves a lot of water. Hmm, I feel a bit of pressure here. Hmm, there might be some restaurant food in the offing. But uh, so, so water is an interesting issue, but not one that's, that's ultra-critical to us because we would rarely boondock for more than three or four days. But, of course, keeping yourself, well, we want to live in a, in a standard lifestyle, so we want to have uh, electricity. And to have electricity, we have um, the batteries, solar, and a generator. But uh, it's not one of those built-in systems that we've kind of put this together as time goes along and as we've uh, found the need. Uh, first of all, our batteries, <coughs> we have uh, put in two golf cart batteries, and uh, this has served us very well. Uh, the golf cart batteries are 6 volt, and you put them in series. Uh, a lot of people use two 12-volters, but uh, unfortunately you can't discharge them as much, and you shouldn't discharge your, cha- your batteries more than 50% before you recharge them. Otherwise, you will reduce their life fairly dramatically. So uh, I bought a case and uh, have installed the two 6-volt uh, batter- golf cart batteries, and they cost in the $50 range. And uh, they are kept charged with a solar panel that is on the roof. And I bought a fairly large one, but uh, only a single panel because I just, I, I'm not really interested in living off the batteries. We're just keeping them charged and keeping them uh, from discharging is, uh, is the primary goal of uh, the, the solar system and so that we have uh, electricity when we need it. So basically we run our generator in the evening and uh, sometimes in the morning not as a, a tool to recharge the batteries but as a so we can make coffee and uh, watch a little TV and and make our lives just as normal as, as possible uh, similar to the way we would live at home. She has no comments about that. Are we living the way we live at home, Miss Martha? Well, kind of. And how is it different? Well, because it's small and and limited. 
when when I cook, even when we're plugged in, I have recipes with limited ingredients, and I have limited pots and pans, limited counter space, and so I try to live small. She lives small, but when she wants to live large in the trailer, we fire up the old generator. Um, we have a new style generator and one that you should be familiar with. Uh, ours is a Honda 2000i, and there's been a lot of changes in generators in the last few years. Um, that would seem kind of counterintuitive because generating electricity has been around for a long time, and the technology to the outsider doesn't seem to have changed very much but in fact uh, when they stick the eye on the end of the model of a generator these days that stands for inverter and using an inverter 12 volts and then they so they generate the, the electricity not in 120 but they generate it in 12 and then kick it up to 120 using an inverter and this is a much more efficient system than taking a small engine and generating 120 volts so that it will power your system so one of the primary factors that I had when I was buying a generator and the generators with I on the end are usually substantially more expensive (laughs) because they are new technology but uh, this particular one uh, the Hondas, the Yamahas and, and all of this ilk are very nice because they're very light. Mine weighs uh, a 2,000 watt generator weighs about uh, 50 pounds and it's very quiet and it sips gas which is also very nice. Obviously it has a fairly small engine. And so we want to not be a bother to people around because we can't uh, we don't actually have a housing in our trailer I just leave the generator in the bed of the truck and it uh, is kind of muffled by the the bed but it it does make a little bit of noise but uh, we have it less than 20 feet the bed of the truck is less than 20 feet from the trailer and it frankly does not uh, we can't barely hear it wouldn't you say well that's especially the case here when we're by the seashore and the noise of the waves and right now the noise of the overhead helicopter are considerably louder than the generator but that's always an issue that bothers me because I don't want to bother other people occasionally you'll see people uh, boondocked in the Walmart parking lot and the idea of turning on our generator while people are trying to shop and come and go uh, that bothers me a little I want to be a considerate neighbor and a good camper um, in terms of courtesy so I I like that it's not built into the trailer because it's quieter for us and I also like that it's uh, portable because occasionally it also comes in handy at home when we have a power failure and Ken can um, boondock in our house as well as in the RV and uh, this is a, a 2000i from Honda, as I mentioned. Uh, I'm not taking any, making any real plugs uh, for them, but they do make a good generator. And the 2000i is uh, has a couple of very nice features. Um, in addition to being small and uh, very low volume, it also has the capability to be tied in tandem with another 2000i. You can buy a cable, which I haven't bought, but I haven't really needed. You can buy a cable which will connect the two, and then you will have 4,000 watts. Um, I think we have found that the 2,000-watt variety is uh, pretty much meets our needs, uh, although we 
are not really using a lot of juice most of the time. Um, the 2000 will do everything for us except run the generator, and, and otherwise we can live fairly normally. When we plug it in, we can turn on the lights and do the microwave, or we can do coffee, but not together. Because ours is, a, unlike some RVs, ours is a 30 amp, uh, and some are 50. So if you've got a 50, you might want to be, you might want to think twice about a 2000 watt generator. But if you have a 50, you probably have a built-in generator anyway. And, of course, uh, this generator runs on gas. But wouldn't you say that it has enough power for the kinds of things that we do? Um, it's fine for everything except my hair dryer, which oh. I have to run on low. But otherwise, um, yeah, it makes our lifestyle quite comfortable. So 2,000 watts for the average trailer probably will do it for you as long as you don't need air conditioning. But if you need air conditioning, then you buy a second 2,000i and you run them in tandem, and it will run the air conditioner. So you can actually carry two of these units. And the nice thing is, is that because it weighs only 50 pounds, you can actually pick this, pick the thing up and not uh, have a hernia, and you can move them around. So you'd have two separate ones rather than one 4,000, which would probably weigh something over 100 pounds. And that would be, yeah, that would be hard to, to carry around. So two of these, although they would, uh, of course, uh, use a bit more gas. But this holds, uh, ours holds about a, a gallon of gas in its tank. And I've been amazed that uh, I can easily run it for six hours without having to fill up. And six hours on a tank of gas, to me, is a, <laughs> a very good uh, amount of time. How did it do last winter when we were in Mexico and we were running our electric heater because it was in the snow? I don't think I want to talk about that. Uh, of course, the more juice you're using, the more gas you're using. And that means that uh, it was uh, last winter we were getting in the order of four hours for a tank. With the heater on. With the heater on. So this helicopter zoomer, here we are. This pristine beach experience and we have the United States Navy helicopters they were doing some um, practicing of mine sweeping or something in the ocean here, it was kind of fun to watch Are there any issues regarding your solar panel once you install it do you have to maintain it or do anything to it or know anything about it but just letting it rip? Uh, that's a good question. And let me just kind of dovetail on that and say that the generator and the solar uh, together keep the batteries really in, in very good condition. Uh, the, obviously, for the six hours in the evening when we've been running the generator, it's charging the batteries. Uh, obviously, the solars are not working at that time because I basically turn it on when it gets dark. And... Uh, the solar then takes over during the day, and the two work in conjunction with with each other. Uh, the solar panel is pretty much just does its thing, and uh, I have a fairly sophisticated controller so that it has uh, a sensor on the battery, and it uh, has very large cables that go to the battery so that it does a better job of keeping the batteries topped up and full than uh, most ordinary battery chargers and certainly much more so than the the built-in converter. Everybody understands the difference between a converter and an inverter, right? No. Right? No. Uh, 
So an inverter converts electricity from 12 volts to 120. You can buy these inverters that, uh, that hook up to your batteries that will convert one uh, 12 volts into 120. And of course, that sounds like a very appealing idea. Well, why the hell do you need a, Why the heck do you need a battery? I'm sorry. Why the heck do you need a generator when you can have this inverter gizmo that plugs into your batteries and will uh, give you 120 right away? Well, the problem is, is that if you run very much stuff off your batteries using the inverter, uh, the batteries will be dead very quickly. So maybe a 1,000, 1,200 watts would be uh, reasonable for uh, our kind of system. Now, if you have four or six batteries, which, of course, adds a lot of weight and a lot of space, you could run longer. But And I'd like to hear what some people, what your experiences are because I, I haven't actually d- done much of that. But... Um, that's the that's the job of an inverter to take the normal 12 volt that you have in your car and kick it up to 120 so that you can run household appliances. And these inverters are all they used to be little vibrator things and and hum and make noise. And nowadays they are nice all digital electronic and much more efficient and they don't generate a lot of heat. Um, and and they work quite well. But understand that. Running 120 volt appliances off of 12 volts does take a lot of power. It's just even though the converter is fairly efficient. So that's the inverter side. Now you also have some UPSs installed in our RV. What are those for? Okay, well, let's talk about the converter first. Um, so the inverter converts 12 volt to 120, and the converter is in your RV, probably built in someplace, and it takes the 110 volt that's coming in through the mains from the outside when you plug in, and down converting it to 12 volt, which is then used to charge your battery, and it also runs the 12 volt stuff inside your trailer. Um, You probably know that you have 12 volt and 120 volt lighting, and uh, things like your refrigerator are just 12 volt, and you have things like uh, radios or stereo systems that are that are 12 volt. So you have various systems, and certainly uh, the sensing systems, such as your um, the sensors for your. Volume le- the levels of the waste tanks and and um, the O2 sensors and the, uh, probably your alarm system probably has is all 12 volt and those of course run off the batteries full time but your converter you don't have to worry about it because your converter takes care of keeping your batteries topped off so that your battery will um, not be depleted by these devices that run. Uh, off of 12 volt so you have the RVs are quite sophisticated they have actually two separate wiring systems a 12 volt and a 120 and you have two different devices the inverter and the converter both of them are fairly expensive and the converter is built into all RVs that I know about, and inverters are more and more common as people do a little bit more boondocking. And now, back to the question that she had. Well, I know that you also have some UPS that you installed in our RV after we bought it. What are those for? Um, A UPS is something that I consider vital 
For a couple of reasons. A UPS is not a delivery service in this case. In electronic terms, it's a universal power supply, or uh, sorry, uninterruptible power supply. And basically, this is a small device which uh, you would hook up to various elect- sensitive electronic components, such as our TV system, so that uh, should you have an interruption in the power or a sur- it's like a super surge protector because all of the electricity goes through a battery so and it's and it's up converted so that this actually provides you with a very safe sort of power system and you know I was very worried about this in Mexico because you hear about uh, bad electricity either low voltage or high voltage or you know that's just not not up to the American standards and and certainly generators can do the same thing now that's another advantage of the inverter generators is that they are very stable in terms of their output uh, and it's very much like the power that you get from the power company so this uh, is uh, a plus, and I bought these little UPSs that I plug into uh, some of the stereos and various sensitive electronic components, which maybe we'll talk about in a future podcast. But uh, they cost uh, in the fifty to sixty dollar range, and they're rated by how long the battery will power the equipment that's connected to it. So, for instance, um, when I shut the generator off, the the TV does not go off because it's then instantly switched over to the power from the inverter or the universal power supply. And that's that's good to know so that if you are in a lightning storm or something and something hits, uh, the UPS stands in between you and the power supply, the outside sources, so that they will be uh, insulated and protected. And if you have expensive equipment, this is this is vital. Plus, a little, and you have a, comp- a computer, you know, a little burp in the power will cause it to reboot and your whole, whatever you were doing, will be lost. So definitely on computers, but not necessarily on laptops because they're already battery operated. Now, you remember that summer we were camped in Williamsburg and we were eating lunch in the RV and there was a very violent thunderstorm and this blue ball of lightning literally rolled down the hall right next to us. I will never forget it. And it burned out our inverter or converter. Now, you just learned about this. Which one did it burn out? One of those erders. Um... What, what can you do to prevent that from happening again? Here, I have this long lecture. What did she get from it? Nothing. <laughs> oh, my. Well, that was uh, that blew out our converter, which is the internal component to our RV. And the UPS is, if I had had one at the front of the, of the converter, it would have saved the converter. But unfortunately, uh, that's not very common. So you'd have to put it onto the plug of the RV. And they do make them, but they're large and heavy. So uh, we blew out our converter. It, no, it blew out. <laughs> and that's where I learned a lot more about converters than I really wanted to know and had to replace the one um, to the tune of two or $300. Uh, so having some sort of uh, surge protection on your RV is probably a good idea, although I'm not practicing what I preach there. I don't have a, a surge protector because... Uh, the surge protector that you have uh, would, is about three or four hundred dollars. So I just didn't replace the converter, I guess. All right, we now know too much about those systems, but 
try to share some of the knowledge that I've picked up along the way, and I'm sure that you'll have some interesting things to tell me after you're done yawning. So now on to something more interesting. Oh, um, this trip, uh, we tried for the first time geocaching, which is something that Ken has been reading about and wanting to do. And um, I should explain for those of you who are as ignorant as I was uh, that, um, well, let me back up. We have a G- I think I think we're going to stop it here. We've been talking 30 minutes. Yeah. Okay, so we'll save geocaching for another big event. So let's just have a wrap-up here. I'll cut all this intermediate stuff out, and we'll just have a wrap-up here. So now that you know, uh, so now that you know our camping uh, camping lifestyle here in the in the midst of the waves and beaches and sand of South Texas, uh, I think we'll wrap it up for this session. But we'll see you in the next podcast in a week or so, and we will keep you up to date with what we are doing and share some of our experiences. In the meantime, be sure sure to send us an email and tell us what you're thinking, what you like, what you don't like, um, and you probably don't like the technicalities of the podcast, and believe me, I'm learning. I'm trying to do uh, a high-tech sort of uh, thing on the road here, so it's a little bit difficult doing this with one microphone, and we'll have to uh, try to upgrade the system in the not-too-distant future, but we hope that you've been able to hear this, and we hope that we've kept you interested and active, uh, thinking about the, the things that we've been doing and the things that you might be doing with the information that we're sharing with you as we move down the road into the future. And we're your RV Navigator podcasters, and I'm Ken. And I'm Martha, the co-pilot. And we'll be seeing you down the road. Happy trails.